Hello listeners, this is Matt from Uncanny Treks, and I want to take a moment to tell you about our brand new Patreon at patreon.com slash uncannytreks. On our Patreon, we offer lots of exclusive content in multiple tiers, including access to our brand new Patreon-exclusive podcast, X-Men 92 vs. Young Justice. On this podcast, we follow the same format as B5 vs. DS9, but with an entirely new focus on reliving the nostalgia of 90s X-Men animated series and comparing it to the fast-paced action of Young Justice. Both of these animated series have recently been renewed for new seasons, so we felt it was a great time to return to these two comic book-based properties. If you're interested in subscribing, please visit us at patreon.com slash uncannytreks, and you can always reach out to us on Twitter at uncannytreks. Enjoy the show, and as always... Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We're a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. How you doing tonight, Matt? Doing okay. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, some things going on with the Kosh that I think are really kind of weird. You're going to have to explain them to me. <laughs> that's right that's right so tonight we're talking about there all the honor lies which is babylon 5 season 2 episode 14 it originally aired on the 26th of april 1995 as well as uh, visionary ds9 season 3 episode 17 which originally aired on the 27th of february that same year yeah so in the a plot we've got sheridan shooting of a member under strange circumstances escalates tension on the station but Kosh forces Sheridan to take time out of his legal troubles to go down below and experience one moment of perfect beauty. Indeed, indeed. And uh, that was an error in the outline, not in Matt, but I guess it should be a Minbari, not a Minbar, which is the world. Oh, whoops. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, my bad. My bad. It's all good. And then in the B plot, Kato dives into a bottle after he gets recalled to the Centauri homeworld. And in the C-plot, Sheridan puts Ivanova in charge of the station gift shop, which is the Earth's Senate's latest scheme to profit off the Babylon 5 station, despite Ivanova's uh, indignant protest that, quote, we're not some deep space franchise. This subplot ends with Kiefer locating an unidentified flying Sheridan bear in the space around the station. That's right. A stuffed Sheridan bear out in space is how we end this episode, folks. Yeah, yeah. So are you familiar with the work of uh, one Peter David, Matt? Yeah, I actually read some of the Trek novels a long time ago, like probably 20-something years ago. He did the New Frontier series. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. I actually, I reread uh, a fair number of those maybe like five years ago. They're pretty fun. I mean, you know, they're not as good as you remember when you were a kid, but they're still pretty fun. All right, that's Captain Calhoun, right? Like, his, yeah, like, yeah, Mackenzie yeah. Calhoun. Right, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a it, it's it's very like sexy and comedic and a little silly. I guess is how I would describe the series. Yeah, it was the first Star Trek like novel that was its own thing. Like it, it wasn't following one of the TV shows, right? Yeah, yeah. Although it kind of was a next generation spinoff because it had like Shelby from the best of the both worlds as uh, Calhoun's exo and former lover. And then I think later she commands her own ship that's kind of paired with the Excalibur. And then you get a lot of other characters who were minor characters on Next Generation. Or if you ever read Peter David's like Starfleet Academy novels with Worf. Like a lot of his characters from those yeah. show up on the bridge crew of the Excalibur. I like those young adult novels. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about those. Yeah, those are those were kind of weird. Yeah, they were. That was actually one thing I really dug about New Frontier at the time was I don't think I knew that P it was aware that Peter David had written the Wharf novels, but I did remember a lot of those characters who show up. Do you remember the Breaker uh, we were arguing about on Prodigy? Uh, not really. No. The, the female, like, rock creature. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know who, I know on Prodigy who she is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, the Breaker come from those Wharf novels, and then that, that character is in the New Frontier novels later. Oh, okay. So it's, they never show the Breaker on the actual television show? Uh, as far as I know, this Breaker on Prodigy is the first, like, canon Breaker we've ever seen. Wow. Moving back to B5, uh... Yeah, yeah. Just to just to clarify for the listeners, if they didn't follow that tangent, Peter David is the screenwriter of this episode. He also screenwrote the one uh, with Malari's three wives that we enjoyed. And he's, and a, a, aside from writing about three dozen Star Trek novels, he's also had a lot of comics runs, um, things like Hulk, Spider Man, Supergirl, X Factor, and most relevantly for us, X uh, Young Justice. See X Men ninety two versus Young Justice. Yeah, Patreon only, folks. Patreon only. So I, I don't know. I thought I found it kind of interesting in this episode that uh, we see Sheridan and Garibaldi speculating about Lanier organizing a cover-up uh, of the real reasons that this Minbari was harassing Sheridan, and it seems like it would be pretty out of Lanier's character and capabilities from what we've seen on the show to organize a cover-up. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Maybe it was supposed to be a sign of the the both Sheridan and Garibaldi's paranoia under the stress of the shooting. Yeah, it really looked to me like Lanier was more efficient at investigating than Garibaldi in this episode because he was always, like, ahead of Garibaldi. Um, I don't think that sat very well with bargain basement Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, partially that's just a commentary about, like, Lanier being more familiar and more comfortable for the Minbari. Right. But also, yeah, Garibaldi kind of sucks. Um, I don't love the character of Lanier, although more for more for things that come much later in the show. But I will say, I do think if he'd had a more defined role, like as security chief instead of diplomatic aide, I think that might have done a lot for the character. So let's shift over a minute to the store, this Babylon 5 uh, Emporium that is built on the... The Zocalo. Zocalo, that's built on the Zocalo. Let's talk a little bit about it. They have all kinds of Babylon 5 merchandise, like models of the ships that you see in this universe and models of b5 and very persuasive human and alien mask we see a drazi and a human mask very funny yeah that was a good little gag there they also have like action figures and dolls so i got kind of excited i was like oh check that out <laughs> so malari of course he sees his doll and he like you know takes it to captain sheridan and he's pissed because apparently any doll that's made of a centauri is supposed to have like 
correct anatomy and it was missing its six dicks. Apparently, in the initial uh, exchange of data between Earth and uh, Centaur, the uh, or Centauri Prime, excuse me, the uh, biggest problem was that the Centauri just could not understand why why our dolls were never anatomically correct. Yeah. So there's a Malari doll, and I was like, okay, I know they put out those uh, like those nine inch dolls of Babylon Five characters, and I was thinking, okay, they're just advertising those here. That's what this is. But I looked it up, and those dolls didn't even get released until 1997. So they like made that just for this one show, <laughs> this one episode. Yeah, yeah. This uh, this subplot about the anatomically inaccurate uh, Malari doll was also the source of what might have been my favorite line for uh, the entire episode when Ivanova starts to tell Malari that he feels symbolically castrated, but then she recovers and instead set instead says symbolically cast in a bad light. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a good line from Ivanova. Hey, man, the Russian tradition of wit and wisdom. Yeah. But I, I was just like, wow, they went through all this trouble of making all this Babylon 5 shit. Apparently, after the episode, they sold off all the stuff that was on in that store to the the crew. Like, somebody owns that Malori doll right now. Probably it's worth, like, tons of money. Well, they probably it's probably been flipped on eBay, like, three times since. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it. That was a fun little subplot. Uh, like you said elsewhere, I'm kind of glad it only went for the one episode, but it was a nice subplot for the episode. It also allowed them to get in the jab at DS9 that I already quoted in the summary. Yeah, the, this isn't some kind of deep space franchise. This place is about something. Hmm. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny that Peter David, who did do so much Star Trek work um is the guy kind of being the hatchet man against ds9 for this babylon 5 episode although from what i understand david never really liked ds9 very much oh. i think he really only the impression i get is he really only likes the original series in the next gen i think like the one ds9 novel he wrote people gen generally think is pretty bad and like doesn't really understand the show or the characters well you know while sheridan's having all these issues you know where He's, you know, being accused of killing this Membari. You know, they sent in a lawyer to represent mm -hmm. him, and that is none other than Caitlin Brown, who played Natoth in season one. She really doesn't play much of a part in this. It's kind of weird. Like, I don't understand what the point was of bringing her in when surely she doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was nice to see her. I mean, she certainly got to, even though she didn't do much, she probably still did more in this episode as the lawyer than she ever did as Natoth. Which is unfortunate because, you know, Natoth has a lot of potential. Yeah, but I wonder if, like, she regrets not keeping the part of Natoth since, like, Natoth rarely shows up on this show. I got the impression that no, because I, I can't remember the specifics, but when I was looking around about this while making the outline, it sounded like she had left the show more than the show fired her. It, like, she got another role or something. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so I... It, I think both she got a better offer and the subsequent treatment of Natoth, neither would incline her to regret leaving, is my impression. While Sheridan is dealing with all this stuff, he's got, you know, Malori upset about his doll. He's got Lanier being kind of a dick. And then he's got Kosh wanting to teach him a lesson. And that lesson is not very obvious to me, but he takes, Kosh takes Sheridan. But it's very obvious. He says it. It's one moment of perfect beauty. But what the, f he takes him down below to like the poorest part, of, poorest, poorest part of Babylon 5, and there's a little hole in the wall. He says, go on in that hole in the wall, and you'll find beauty. And there's some dudes in there with robes on, 
and he offers them like his combat, his badge or something like that, part of it. And they take it and they sing him a song. Yeah, it's one moment of perfect beauty in in the poorest, most impoverished part of the station. Why is that hard to understand? How is that perfect beauty, Bob? It's a bunch of like dudes singing a song. I mean, I didn't think it was perfect beauty, but both Kosh and Sheridan seem to think so. So I, you know, um, I can follow that. So Sheridan believes it was perfect beauty. Yeah, he clearly does. He's clearly very affected and moved by it. I thought it was lame. I mean, that's just because uh, you can't even appreciate one moment of imperfect beauty, let alone a moment of perfect beauty. Apparently not. I'm just saying, if Kosh told me to go get in a hole and down below, I'd be freaking out. I mean, I mean wouldn't, wouldn't a, a, lot of ma- a lot of magical things can happen in a hole, Matt. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Junji Ito story you should read about a person finding a hole that fits them just perfectly. It's great. It's like a horror. He's a great horror manga artist. Well, I, I'll, I put just, the, I'll put the link to that story in the show notes. Yeah. Listeners should read it. It'll be like their perfect hole. There you go. You can learn about your perfect hole. I, I just I just found it odd. I don't. I mean, I guess it's meant to be like. I think you're right. Even though they're in like the poorest part of town, it's still something beautiful is happening. So even though bad things are going on for Sheridan, he's got to take a moment to stop and smell the flowers. Is that yeah, what it you, is? Yeah, you've noticed that Sheridan is very kind of like new agey, right? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, like he's in, you know, he's very much your like Western Buddhist, but also into like other, you know, kind of nebulous Eastern and indigenous spirituality. That's that that's pretty much Sheridan. Yeah, and like an earlier episode, he says he met the Dalai Lama in Tibet or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, he definitely does say that earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, well, I guess this all makes sense then. He's just trying to find the beauty and all this stress and. It's also kind of an interesting life. overlap with his interest in conspiracy theories, right? It does kind of make him a very sort of like new age protagonist into alternative spirituality, into conspiracy theories. Yeah. But another thing we learn about Sheridan in this episode, Bob, is that he used some pretty devious tactics uh, to do away with the uh, Minbari ship back in the I, war. I, I don't think it's that devious. I just think the Minbari are babies. It's pretty devious, Bob. He gives He sends out a fake distress signal. And they end up in a minefield. I don't know. I, I feel like, granted, they haven't quite shown this as much as you'll see it later. But uh, when the Minbari are fighting Earth, they just have an overwhelming technological advantage. So much so that you almost shouldn't call it fighting. And so them whining about this, I just think it's pathetic. It feels like it's, you know, America whining about, like, uh, the insurgencies in Vietnam or Iraq getting one over on them. Okay. So do we see this actually play out in one of the TV movies or something? Yeah, the one that's called In the Beginning, which is honestly really, it's not a good TV movie. Like all the Babylon 5 TV movies are kind of eh, but okay. that the In the Beginning is the worst in my opinion. But it, it's, it shows most of the Earthman-Bari War. But even before that, I think like, I think the show makes it pretty clear in some of the later episodes that like, the Earth, and I mean, I think uh, Sinclair has already made it pretty clear in season one that the Earthman Bar War was just totally one-sided. Gotcha. So I guess it's just, it's okay, though, that he was kind of sneaky. I mean, literally, it's the only, that's the only Minbari ship that the Earth killed during the entire war. Well, wasn't it like their flagship, though? I think it was the Minbari flagship, but literally it was the only, the only ship the, uh, the humans even destroyed. It was their favorite, Bob, and that's what mattered. 
I, I like what kind of like contemporary uh, advocates for the American empire. I just really want to really want to stress how childish the Minbari are. I bet they <laughs> offer, I bet they also suffer from Havana syndrome, like our whiny millennial spies. It's disgusting. <laughs> so another thing I learned too in this episode is about the Minbari that apparently they don't lie unless they're covering up for their own clan. Well, the way they would put it is that they, they wouldn't lie to cover up for their clan, but they would practice mild deceit in order to help another save face. Bullshit. That's the same thing. They're covering up for their own people in their clan. <laughs> I, I don't that, know. I, do, do you find this trope really annoying? I find like the trope of like, Oh, I do. I, I do a hundred percent. I thought it was really yeah. stupid. I'm like, how can they do that? If they can lie any, if they can, if they don't, if they have the ability to lie, then they're going to lie at some point. Like you can't just make up these yeah. asinine rules. Yeah, no, even though I, even though I don't believe in like a, a unitary human nature, really, there's a, there's a species that's so culturally ingrained into honesty that they're incapable of lying. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's not going to happen. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I didn't care for it, but it is something we learned. So I figure it's going to play something maybe down the road a little bit. You know, I will say it, it does at least balance with their outrage about Sheridan being sneaky and blowing up the ship. I mean, I think, I think overall, I don't really love either how the episode uses either trope, but at least the, the two tropes sort of balance each other. The only other really big thing that happened in this episode is that uh, Kato gets called from the home world that he's got to go back, and he's not very happy about this because he enjoys, I guess, working with Londo. We also find out, though, that the position that Kato fills now as the ambassador, I mean, as the uh, assistant to the ambassador, Mm-hmm. is like a joke to the Centauri. Well, it. I think it's not that, that the position is a joke. I just think that the, the role of Ambassador to Babylon 5 was not prestigious until Malari became prestigious for other reasons. Until he made a deal with Mr. Morden. Yes. Although they don't, they don't know about the deal. Yeah, now he's the top shit and... Kato wants a piece of the action. Yeah, this is probably going to get us some uh, hate from our listeners who are big Babylon 5 fans. But yeah, I think you and I both just kind of hate Kato. Yeah, I really wish I developed zero sympathy for him. And I really thought they were writing him off the show at this point. And then I was like, oh, oh. no, no, no. You, you are going to see so much more of Kato. Well, all right, then. Well, he's annoying as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that although it is an occasion for uh, Malari to give some really choice wisdom to Kato, which is if you remember it, it's not a real hangover. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. You ever you ever, right. you ever woken up in like a closet somewhere? Uh, I have woken up outside. I have woken up <laughs> f- on the floor. Um, I've woken up places I generally don't recognize. I don't think I've ever woken up in a closet. Yeah, one one time, like only once. I had once, a friend who woke up in a dog bed, though. Oh, wow. Yeah, only one time in my life have I, like, legit drank enough to where I guess I blacked out. And then when I woke up, I didn't know where I was. And I start shouting and, like, hollering because I have no clue. And then I, I, I find out, like, I hear people outside. I'm like, oh, I'm in the closet inside my bedroom. They have no clue how I got here. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say that I, I have some dignity, so when I wake up in unfamiliar places, I don't start shouting. You don't, you don't start crying for your mom? Come on. 
No. <laughs> I, I do plenty of other embarrassing sentimental things when drunk, but uh, uh, I, I don't usually uh, I don't usually wake up screaming when I'm at, in an unfamiliar well, place. Well, it freaked me out because I was like I thought maybe I'd been kidnapped and was going to be sold. I'm like, this is sex slave or something. <laughs> the white slavery. Yeah. Statue. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is how it ends. <laughs> Oh no, Matt! It would just be yeah. beginning. <laughs> sounds like some shit. That sounds like some shit Kosh would say. <laughs> All right, should we transition over to DS Nine? Yeah, let's transition to DS Nine. So, in the A plot, we have a Romulan intelligence delegation arrives at the station, displeased at little information DS Nine has passed them about the Dominion in exchange for the Romulan cloaking device on the Defiant while a Klingon freighter crew is also stranded on the station for a couple of days. Yes, yes. And then the B-plot, O'Brien gets a radiation dose that unsticks him in time, much like Slaughterhouse-Five or Captain America or Batman. This sounds like some Babylon Squared shit. It is sort of like some Babylon Squared shit, yeah, now that you mention it. Hmm. But anyway, uh, so my understanding is if you get radiation poison, you get prophetic visions. So, well, I'm uh, not, no, no, no. If you get radiation poisoning, you can, you can travel a limited amount of time into the future. Okay. Well, let's go get radiation poisoning. I mean, it's either that or spider powers. Those are the two <laughs> options. Yeah. I don't know what it was about the eighties and nineties. Well, I guess it'd be longer than that. Like, I don't know what it was before uh, the year 2000 that everyone thought radiation meant you could get cool shit. <laughs> radiation will make you end up like that dude in RoboCop, the the bad guy that gets the toxic oh, I crap. I didn't remember that radiation played a role there. Yeah, that toxic crap gets put all over him. At the end or at the beginning? The end. Not 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 Robocop oh, himself, okay. but one of the bad guys. Oh, I, yeah, I, I don't remember the movie that well. Oh. Well, shame on you. All right. <laughs> so, I know your opinions of time travel, Bob, and they suck, but this episode reinforces that whole butterfly effect you despise. I strongly, I strongly disagree that this reinforces the butterfly effect. Like, the point of the butterfly effect is if, like, you know, to use the, the cliched example, um, a butterfly flaps its wings in New England and a tsunami hits Japan. That's what the butterfly effect means. This is not showing a butterfly effect where, like, a small change has a catastrophic result in an unexpected way. This is showing that small changes in a very narrow crisis have big effects, which, yeah, that's obvious and banal. Yeah, O'Brien opening a panel dies. O'Brien knowing not to open the panel, he doesn't die. That's butterfly effect. No, that's not butterfly effect at all. <laughs> that's simple cause and effect because the panel is like loaded with radiation or whatever. The, no, the butterfly effect would be O'Brien opens the panel, the Dominion invades Vulcan. That's what the butterfly effect would be. The whole point of the butterfly effect is that it's far, far divorced cause and effect. That's what the butterfly effect means, and that's stupid. We're not talking about the butterfly effect. We're talking about it, narrowly construed <laughs> cause and effect in a crisis situation. Very different. Gotcha. So it's not the butterfly effect. It's not the butterfly effect. Well, give it a cool name. Causality? Oh, the philosophers not... already got there, man. No, give it a cooler name. Give it something like... <laughs> it's got to have an animal in it, Bob. There's no effect. It's just causality. <laughs> like, it's just like what you, it's like, it's just like, oh, I punched myself in the jaw. My jaw hurts. That's not the butterfly effect. 
but what if you were going to use your jaw to be a great singer one day and you, cause you hit yourself in the jaw and now you no longer can sing. That would also just be causality. Now, if I hit myself in the jaw and then someone else becomes a great singer because I hit myself in the jaw, that would be the butterfly effect. They hit, you hit yourself in the jaw because you can't sing and you can't sing anymore. So someone else takes your place on like American Idol. I like, I still feel like that's, that's still like, on a pretty narrow causal range. You want something broader for the butterfly effect. It's, it's like a butterfly flaps their wings in New England, tsunami in Japan. That's gotcha. the butterfly effect. So O'Brien opens a panel and something really cool happens somewhere else. Yes. Got it. All right. Well, I'm glad I learned something again today. I'm just excited about all these great things you teach me. <laughs> um, God damn it. Now, the Romulans are at the station to discuss the Dominion intel that Cisco should be collecting with the Defiant. Like can, I, can I just uh, in, in, insert a side note here? Doesn't right it in. seem like the Romulans are entirely right to be annoyed? Oh, yeah, they're right as hell. Yeah, they're all yeah, they're, yeah. Both, they're they're right. Uh, they have formed this alliance when they handed over the cloaking device, which is like a, supposed to be this like amazing piece of technology that the Federation can't seem to figure out how to make themselves or whatever. Well, the, the, the Federation has agreed via treaty to not have cloaking devices with the, like they had a treaty in the early 24th century with the Romulans. That's why they don't have it. So they can't have like cloaking devices made in the USA or some shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a condition of like that. Yeah. They explore that. I think in that, um, that seventh season next generation episode where there's like an illegal cloaking device on a Federation ship. Yeah. I'm not putting a cloaking device in my vehicle unless it's made in the U S of a, <laughs> well, I mean, clearly what we need to do is to, we need to put tariffs on the production of cloaking devices. That's yeah. clearly the answer. So one thing this, this, this reminds me of is wasn't there supposed to be some Romulan who was like hanging out with them on the defiant to teach them how to use all this shit. Yeah, yeah, we we see uh, her either in the search part one or the search part two. I don't remember which. And we talked about her a little in our episode on that episode. And yeah, the way the episode sets it up, it feels like she should be, if not a new cast member, at least like a reoccurring, like supporting character. And we never see her again. And it's kind of weird because they even frame it like she's the only person who's supposed to turn on and off the cloaking device. <laughs> She has a little key around her neck. She... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got it kind of got like nuclear suitcase vibes off of it. Yeah. So, I mean, wouldn't that fix their problem to have this this person on their on the ship all the time, just so they know like that that would kind of help the Romulans? I mean, it just... yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it just seems it just seems totally reasonable that the Romulans have made an exception to their you know early twenty fourth century treaty with the Federation and now want like intelligence, uh, you know, because of that. That seems like very deeply reasonable. Yeah, it sounds very fair. Like, I don't get it. I mean, I don't know why yeah, DS9 would like, such hard But, like, Cisco asses. and Kira have to be very defensive and offended about it. Uh, so, other things that happened this episode, Bob, that I thought were hilarious. Uh, Quirk hitting Morn with a, with a dart was hilarious. Good times. Good times. Yeah. And then the Romulans calling out Kira for abandoning the Defiant when the Jim'Hadar attacked. It was a good call back to earlier episodes, and it was hilarious as well. That did remind me where the character is kind of like suspiciously reviewing actions that the captain or the, you know, another Starfleet officer has taken in prior episodes. It reminded me of a next gen episode we've talked about on the podcast, the drumhead. 
where the Admiral is like doing all these very kind of uncharitable uh, interpretations of Picard's actions as a commander. And then it also uh, reminded me of there's a fun Voyager episode where Seven of Nine basically goes full QAnon and becomes convinced that like Janeway intentionally stranded the Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. You know what it reminded me of, Bob? What's that? Babylon 5. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, is, that was Babylon 5's uh, favorite plot device in season one, wasn't it? Yes, it was, Bob. Here they are. I'd, ar- I'd already blotted it out. <laughs> yeah. It's just the name of the show, but yeah, it did remind me a lot of Babylon 5. Yeah, yeah. S- seeing a lot of that from this episode. Yeah. And then we also have a kind of interesting uh, thing where um, O'Brien dies in this episode and is replaced by O'Brien from a few hours in the future. Yeah, how the hell does that work? And why don't we ever go back to this, like, later on down the road? I mean, I think that's, like, it's not an uncommon thing you'll see in Star Trek. There was that episode of Voyager where, like, I think it was an alternate universe Harry Kim takes the place of our universe's Harry Kim after Harry Kim dies. Yeah, I I just feel this is, like, messed up. Because now the O'Brien we're watching isn't really the same O'Brien we're watching in the previous episodes. I don't know. I I, kind of like it. it. Anything that makes individuality less important, I celebrate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, so, I mean it doesn't matter. Like you yourself in the yourself from five uh, five hours in the future, yourself from the alternate universe. It's all the same. It doesn't matter. Don't be precious about it. Yeah, but I mean, what if it's not like a, a Brian should have like a mustache now or some shit, like a mirror universe for Brian. It, it takes more than five hours to grow a mustache, man. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. All right. So, <laughs> so this story was actually originally going to have Odo doing all this time jumping shit. Uh, I'm kind of glad they went with O'Brien. O'Bri- I like the trope that O'Brien is always the character who has these like weird mindfuck uh, Cartesian dilemma things foisted upon him. So do you agree that this is like an O'Brien torture episode? I think so. Yeah. It fits in that I category. Mean, it's definitely not as hardcore as some of the other ones we would see, but I, I think it, I think it counts. And we do get a really cool scene in this episode, I have to say, of DS9 being destroyed. And is this the only time we see it destroyed? I don't know for sure, but I feel like there must have been like an orb vision or something of DS9 getting destroyed at some point in the series. Possibly. I, I'd be really surprised if this is the only time. Um, we'll, have to, we'll have to check up on that later on as we go through this. But there wasn't much more to this episode, honestly. Yeah, I guess it's time to transition over to Thirst Watch. And I would just like to say that the Romulan spooks interrogating Kira about Odo's feelings for her, they basically have the same job that we do. Yeah, they do. It's pretty funny. How does it feel to be a Romulan spy speculating about the romantic feelings of your uh, observed subjects, Matt? I'm fine with it. Can I be Taushior? Hell yeah, you can. But you can't be Zatvash. They're too hardcore. Okay. I think there also might be all female. Maybe that was that true from Picard or were there male Zatvash? I think they were all female. Yeah. The future is female, man. How about your uh, character of the week, Matt? Uh, My character of the week for this week is actually Lanier. And it's for something we didn't mention. He has like Mimbar Foo going on. Like he has these fighting moves at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mentioned this, it does remind me that, which I sometimes forget that Lanier is basically supposed to be like a, a Kung Fu monk from a martial arts movie. Yeah. He's pretty badass with his moves. So I, I don't know if him. I'd go that far, but it, it sure is something. <laughs> yep. Character of the week, Lanier. 
I would definitely say for me, the character of the week was Ivanova. Uh, she had the best lines. Although I am tempted to give it for to Kiefer because it's his smallest role to date and also the least annoying role of his to date. So I'm, I'm tempted to recognize him for that. Yeah. Kiefer, I guess. I mean, JMS had to meet like a quota with how many times that dude had to be in episodes, right? Uh, I probably, probably there was some contractual agreement. They just shoved him in the end of this episode. <laughs> He's out <laughs> in space looking for shadow ships and he runs into a bear. <laughs> All right. Got it, it did seem, is it just me or does it seem a little unlikely that the Sheridan bear would show up on Babylon five sensors? Yeah, I don't think it should. I feel like their sensors are screwed if that's like what it's picking up. I'm sure there's a lot of trash in space at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Around Babylon 5, at least, you know. If yeah, well, and with the station having, you know, some sort of a gravity well. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so episode of the week goes to There All the Honor Lies. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, there's... I, this this episode of DS9 was okay. It wasn't... Yeah, I liked great. it. I just had very little to say about it. Yeah, it was just, it was just one of those episodes. It was very next generation yeah, yeah, it it does have a lot more of a next gen vibe than it does a DS nine vibe. That's I think that's fair. All right, so what do we got going on next week, Bob? Oh, I don't know. What do we have going on next week, Matt? So next week on Babylon Five, we have now for a word. Yeah, which is a fun gimmick episode. Okay, it's a gimmick episode. Yeah, because now for a word sounds like now for a word from our sponsor. That is what it's supposed to sound like. Uh. Okay. And then Distant Voices, which apparently is a Bashir-centric episode. Got to give it up for Bashir episodes. Woot woot. All right. All right. Well, this has been Babylon 5 versus DS9, the galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. We are a part of Uncanny Treks. I am Bob from Cascadia. That's Matt from the Southland. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>